Welcome to Guys Who Do Stuff. All right. Welcome to the Guys Who Do Stuff podcast. I'm Joe. And I'm Josh. And we are here in Charlotte, North Carolina with Neil Bailey. Very fitting that we took a road trip. Josh and I got in the car. Well, actually, he borrowed his wife's car this morning so that we could come down here and talk to an adventurer, a journalist, a philanthropist, Neil Bailey. Thanks for having me on the podcast, guys. I'm Neil Bailey. I'm apparently an adventurer, a philanthropist, and a motorcyclist. Yeah. So, not if you talk to my mother. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely to see you here in Charlotte on a rainy day. You know, I left England to get out of the rain. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that didn't work out. Well, I just, um, if I'm a little scratchy and choky here, I've been a little bit under the weather, so please excuse my... That's right. It just makes uh, make a starker contrast between my high-pitchy, not-manly voice and what... And my bassy presence. <laughs> wow. So when did you leave England? Where? Who are you anyway? Who, who, Hang on. I'm just, I'm just basking you? that last compliment. <laughs> <laughs> who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? And who do others say you are? Wow, that was a pregnant pause, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I grew up in England, uh, born in 1961. Um, around about the age of 13, my mother remarried and we went to Scotland, which was a particularly interesting period of my life. Um, leaving a sleepy southern seaside town and sort of being pitched right into the middle of the religious violence that was spilling over from Ireland at the, mm. in the late 70s. Um, it was a bit of a shock to the system. I think, you know, my two years of high school in Scotland were really, um, I think they helped develop my character in a lot of ways because I spent more time avoiding getting stabbed and slashed than actually bothering to you know, pay attention to, you know, doing schoolwork because there's yeah. pretty violent kids in my school. And, you know, um, around the time I was, I was about 19 years old, my stepfather died and uh, we moved back to my hometown. And uh, this was right around the late 70s, early 80s. So you got to remember that time. We had massive unemployment. Yeah. I found myself in my teenage years in Southern England, back in my hometown, um, unemployed, um, very, very little chance of a job. And uh, that really, again, greatly shaped my life. You have siblings? Was it just you and your mom? Or? I had an older sister and the three of us moved back and she had been to nursing school. So she quickly picked up a job as a nurse. Mm. I got a job in a nightclub and that didn't end well. Um, what was your job in the nightclub? I was kind of dormant slash bounce, you know, 145 pounds, you know. So I wasn't very effective at tossing <laughs> out the drunks. And, what was that in stones? <laughs> that was about 10 stones soaking wet, 28 inch waist. Um, yeah, I just remember getting, trying to drag some drunk asshole out of the bar one night and some other clown was hitting me with a chair and I'm just like, this is, <laughs> this is kind of ridiculous. That was your first you know? job? Yeah. So anyway, um, I, uh, I quit that job and then, you know, it is an interesting period in history because we started, um, or I started going to the unemployment office, the doll office as we would mm -hmm. call it. And, um, you know, you initially go there and you dress up and you try and get a job and you apply for jobs and you go for jobs and week in, week out, you know, there's no jobs. I mean, there's a few part-time cleaner jobs or different things and yeah. you know, you just can't get a job. And then one day I had the fortuity of running to a guy 
And we were, you know, I now was wearing my leather bike jacket and jeans and he had a leather jacket and jeans and he had the dubious name of maggot. I should have known there was something wrong there. So, <laughs> That's so anyway, a trustworthy name. Yeah, I wouldn't call yourself maggot, right? But So anyway, one thing leads to another, a cup of tea, have a joint. And, you know, you just start getting immersed in the unemployment culture. And that's really what we did at that time. So, um, so what was, what was the unemployment culture like? Just. It was his own, it was his own village. Now that I look back on it, there was you know, scores and scores of young people who just didn't have a job. Yeah. And when you don't have a job, you have to have something to do. And, you know, getting high is a great thing to do. And it gives you a purpose and a sense of commitment that you've got to go find the money. You've got to go find the drugs. You've got to get high. And when I look back on it now, it was very interesting. You know, we all had this limited amount of money every week that mm-hmm. the government gave us. It was our welfare check. And it's quite funny now because, you know, you think about the, the band UB40. Yeah. And everybody knows the song Red Red Wine. Right. Um, but, you know, one of UB40's most famous songs was I Am a One in Ten. And the reason that they were called UB40 was the card that we had from the government to go get our government cheese was a UB40. And everybody in the band was unemployed. Hmm. And the song, I am a one in 10, I'm a statistical reminder of a world that doesn't care, is the fact that one in 10 people were technically unemployed at that time. And it got worse. Hmm. And, you know, unemployment is not systematic. It's not one in 10 everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in a seaside town. We probably had 30% unemployment because there was no industry there. Or maybe London... Hmm. Yeah, had 6% unemployment. So it, it doesn't it doesn't smoothly blanket the country. Right. So this was into my early 20s. And so you have to think that your know, punk rock in America was a fashion. Mm-hmm. And in England, it was a statement. And the statement that punk rock was at the time was, if we're nobody, we're going to be nobody. But at that time, you know, the British stiff upper lip, a man went to work, he didn't get divorced, he didn't talk about your problems. And suddenly you've got all these brilliant young minds on this sort of social scrap heap. They didn't have a job, they didn't have an identity. Yeah. They were nobodies. They were looked down on. So they took that sort of being looked down on and having no identity and created an identity by being outrageous. And that, in my mind, is really what punk rock was all about. It was a rebellion against that rigid British system that they'd grown up in that they couldn't get into because they didn't have a job, they didn't have a career, they didn't have any money. So do you think your upbringing and spending time in in, uh, in a war that wasn't yours, inheriting a, a problem that really wasn't yours. Is that, did that make you be a rebel or is that not who you are? Are you a rebel? I would say that it did make me a rebel. I think if I fast forward today at 57 years of age, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. Hmm. I'm not in debt. You know, I don't do medication, you know, exercise. I go to bed early and I travel the world and, and do philanthropic stuff and ride motorcycles. And I'm a complete fucking rebel because everybody my age is, you know, they've got diabetes, they're having strokes and heart attacks, they're drunk, they're on marijuana, they're on Adderall, they're on antidepressants, they're on sleep. Yeah, you're like doing it backwards. Yeah, there's something fucking wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> you're like Benjamin buttoning your way through. Wait, rewind, rebellion. rewind, rewind. Wait, that's your word, rewind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, so I kind of like being a rebel. You know? So I got a good question for you, or one that I've thought about yeah. a lot because- uh, a little bit of my upbringing, like I wasn't really brought up religious, but then I became super religious. And then you kind of, as you grow up, you start to question the things that you were told as truth. And I was wondering for you, having kind of rebelled in reverse here, the, uh, 
What were you so certain of that was 100% true at 18 that now you look back and you're like, man, I couldn't have been further off. That everybody should be high all day. Yeah. <laughs> that was just, <laughs> now they are. It. I guess my prediction came true. The whole fucking society is just wasted the whole time driving hmm. their own antidepressants and marijuana and God knows what else. Maybe hmm. my dream came true. I'm yeah. living in a world of stoned people. Well, you escaped England. I mean, you're here. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was an escape. You know, you think about, um, so talk to us about the escape. Like what went from, cause I think in a situation like that, a lot of people would feel trapped. Like there's just nothing for them because that's their only version of their world. And I did a little bit of research on you. You're kind of, you got an extensive travel history. So what was it that, that, what was your catalyst? Like, what was your, what was the moment that was, Oh, that was, that was when I knew I had to leave. I think culturally growing up as a Brit, it doesn't make me wrong. It doesn't make me right. Um, I just think we had a different interpretation of what life was going to be about. I think as a young man growing up, um, you know, the people in our society that got a lot of respect were doctors, professors, um, people of learning, education. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't so vastly enamored with celebrity. Um you know, for instance, you could have a guy in our town that owned a car dealership and maybe he was a lot wealthier than the doctor or the professor or the, um, you know, whatever, whatever in academia. But it, it wasn't like he was just like a standout guy. I mean, it was, you know, he, he was viewed as he was a person in society, but he wasn't an intellectual. I mean, he was a business guy. He was making a load of money maybe, but it wasn't so revered. It wasn't like everybody was chasing after that concept. Yeah. So I think, you know, academia was definitely appreciate it and travel was just part of our cultural upbringing i mean the brits have been people have been coming and going in england since you know the normans the saxons the vikings i mean who knows how many times britain's have been overrun and how many yeah you know, how many years did we spend rocking around the world mm-hmm. you know doing a lot of damage and a lot, you know hopefully some good along the way so culturally we were just i think designed to travel and explore yeah so i guess a uh, another way to get at is what went from what sounded like having a plan that was pretty just, I think everybody should smoke pot. I think we're, we know what, we know what this is and ride motorcycles, and ride motorcycles yeah. to, uh, now I think the majority of what you can find online about you is about being philanthropic and making a difference in starting an organization. And what, what went from what happened in your mind where you realize that there needs to be a different or a change of course that led you down that path? I think that goes back to being a kid growing up. And we had a television show at the time when we were kids. It was called Blue Peter. And I've talked about this before. And that does not sound like a safe show to watch. <laughs> yeah. It, it's actually the name of a flag that flies in the ship. Oh, okay. And it has some significance. Probably means it's not good there. <laughs> so it's something to do with It's a nautical term. So anyway, you got to think at the time, right? We had just, we were just getting color television. We had two channels of TV and young people had like an hour or two of television in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And that was probably it. And one of the shows we have is called Blue Peter. And there was a cast of characters that were you know, probably in the thirties. We were kids. So we saw this very adventurous group of people, but once a year they would do a charity drive. And they would go to Africa and identify a place of need, um, which was usually Ethiopia at that time, a lot of mm-hmm. famine, a lot of drought. 
And they would come home, they would say, we found this project, we need to raise this amount of money. And this is what we're going to do. You guys are all going to go out and find all the old knives, forks, and spoons, or you're going to go find old wool clothing, or you're going to find unused, you're going to find used postage stamps, whatever mm-hmm. the, whatever the recyclable, it wasn't called recycling in those days. We were just collecting. And we would send this stuff into Blue Peter. And every week we would tune in and they would have one of those big thermometers, you know, yeah. fundraising thermometers that we used to have. And we would raise money and buy Land Rovers, bulldozers, grain, farming implements, whatever. And yeah. we would spend our summers scampering around, you know, collecting knives, forks and spoons or whatever it needed to be for the project and tuning in to see where we were going. And then, you know, the end of the summer would come along and they would put all the stuff on the ship. They would go to Africa. We would see the project. And yeah. we just all, I think as kids felt really, really connected to this project. And, you know, looking back with hindsight, it's a beautiful thing. You, you, you realize, well, I mean, I probably didn't even raise enough money for a couple of lug nuts on one of the Land Rovers, but you couldn't have knocked that out of me as a kid. They were my Land Rovers. Yeah, we were doing that project, and I think that just instilled something in me, along with my society's desire to do mm. charitable good to lots of people in England, cycle around the world for charity, climb mountains for charity. My mother, even as she approached ninety years of age, was still raising money for the lifeboats because they're a voluntary service where yeah. I'm from, because we have some pretty treacherous um, sea. Um, so it just—I kind of grew up in a culture of this sort of charity idea. And I think when I was 18, I took off to London and I worked in a home for abandoned kids. I was there for about seven or eight months, full-time voluntary work. And I think when I came out of there, um, I think it was a little bit- Seven or eight years? Months. Months. Wow. It's a long time. Yeah. And I think when I came out of there, should we wake him up? Yeah. You got to get closer to your mic. You sound like you're in a cave. (laughs) Hello, (laughs) Clarice. You didn't tell anyone you put him in the cave. <laughs> <laughs> Let me out of here. <laughs> All right, back to the story. We're at seven, seven to eight months abandoned kids in London. You're, you're serving there for seven or eight months. I was, yeah. And I think I came out of there a little bit complacent. I thought, well, hey, I've done my stint. Mm. You know, now it's time for me. Yeah, let's roll another one and go at it. Mm. And during the time I'd been in London working, I'd got a part-time job at night because obviously you didn't make any money. And I'd bought a small motorcycle. And the first thing I did when I quit at the school, my time ran up, was I sold the bike, grabbed a backpack and went to Europe. And I spent a couple of months hitchhiking around Europe. Um, to so, so I have to ask, the, the motorcycle came into your life at the, around the same time as your service with abandoned children? My uh, love for the motorcycle probably started when I was about 14 or 15. I had a high school friend called Johnny Dupay, and we would look at motorcycle magazines and dream about the days we were going to get a motorcycle. And a young kid in my neighborhood had an old BSA Bantam we used to ride around the field. And I'm going to be about 14 or 15. So by the time I was 16, I had bought a moped. By the time I was 17, I had bought a Honda 250. I'd had a Yamaha 125. So the bike that I bought with my gardening money as a volunteer when I was 18 was about my yeah. fourth or fifth motorcycle. That's cool. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm in a weird spot with motorcycles because I'm a pretty... I would say domesticated. Like I was talking to a friend and my wife doesn't want me to get a motorcycle until the kids get older. Cause then when I kill myself, it's fine. This is her logic with it. I know, I know she doesn't want to see me die, but, uh, at the same time, I feel so, um, I don't know, silly, like emasculated to be like, why can't I just get a motorcycle? Cause I want to ride a motorcycle, but I've never really rode one, but I had a spree. 
when I was in uh, like 14, 15. And I used to ride it through fields and it was awesome. Yeah. Oh, you got the bug at that point. That's how yeah. I started on a farm in North Carolina. Dad said, you guys get to know this. And we and I did it and it was fun. It was implanted forever. Do you have a motorcycle now? Oh my God. I have to confess. I don't. I had two. I <laughs> sold softball. It's implanted it. forever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a sensitive topic to be honest. One is very connected with my dad and, and another was with just both of those bikes and biking in general is connected with my dad. And I have a lot of respect for my dad and I've made some decisions lately to let go of some bikes to purchase camera equipment. So that was a decision I made and I'm sticking with it. I do not have two. I have a bicycle, which I ride often and get uh -huh. my, two wheel pleasures from, but <laughs> currently no, no motorcycle. You're I'm saying. just giving you a bunch of crap. I mean, I sold my bike to go traveling a number of times. And I think if you're, if motorcycling's in you, you'll be back to it. Oh yeah. I know. I wore this jacket just for you. I haven't worn it in a while, but I, I did. I found this jacket in New York city. And it's like Britney me. Spears. Or I found <laughs> it's a lot of badges. The first patch I found on the street in the East village in New York city. And then from there it was like tattoos. I couldn't stop. Look at this one. Yeah. Motorcycles are a big deal. They are. They are. Two wheels moves the soul. Four wheels moves the body, right? Neil? Yeah. Sometimes you need to, you need to step out, I think, and it's okay. Yeah. I, I say I sold that first motorcycle or one of those first motorcycles to go do my first hitchhiking trip around Europe. So maybe with you, Joe, I mean, it's, you just gotta, yeah, at some point ride a motorcycle around the neighborhood. Maybe yeah. I mean, I've, I've ridden them short distances. I just, yeah. I can't own one and that feels you don't have to own That's one. That's challenging to me. Yeah. yeah. I'll just ride them illegally when I <laughs> just steal them and put them back. That's a good plan. I'll do that. I wouldn't worry about it. If it was in you to ride, you'd ride. Yeah. Like nothing will stop you. You'll just get on them, you know? Well, thanks for letting me off the hook. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, what's your personal life like? <laughs> Tell us a little about that. You have two awesome, awesome sons. Yeah. I'm single, uh, very single. Um, and uh, yeah, just got a, I'm, I'm a empty nester, I guess the kids are gone and, and I'm just in a transition period of my life where, yeah. what do I do now? You know, I don't have to provide that weekly home. I was uh, separated from my kid's mother years ago, but you know, every other weekend they were here and holidays and middle of the week in school and had a wonderful chat with my youngest the other day about how, you know, how adventurous it was when they were young. We were always doing something stupid. We had many dirt bikes or bicycles or hiking or I don't know. There's always something ridiculous going on. And I'm really glad that they remember that and they remember that here at this house. And now I'm not sure. I don't know that I'm not a little bit too institutionalized to go again. Hmm. You know, I'm very settled here. I've been here 14 years. I've got my routine with the gym, the grocery stores and the house. Yeah. And I don't know that I could, uh, I don't know that I could hack it out there on the road. <laughs> <laughs> full time again. <laughs> so you were talking, there's a fascinating story about blue Peter, which is a terrible sounding name, but excuse me for being like ugly American. I'm sure it was very wholesome. Uh, and that was a catalyst for you to really, it sounds like get involved in a, in a bigger story. What do you think our kids today, what did your kids have that were those kind of moments? I can't, when you were telling that story, I can't think of anything that's on TV right now that I watch with my kids. Well, or anything going on in culture that's really inspiring people to take action like that. And hundred percent agree with you. And it, there's two things in your question you'd asked earlier on, you know, what was my catalyst to leave America as a kid? And then we kind of sidetracked off to what was my catalyst for sort of doing philanthropy? Well, back to the thing of being in England, mm -hmm. um, I had done a program the other day called, it's called youthful ambition. And the guy asked me to, 
talk about my ambition mm-hmm. for youth. And I said, you know, I wanted to hitchhike across America and smoke dope in California. And, you know, it was a really interesting statement because I think up front and in the face of it, you'd get a, oh, oh my goodness, you know. <laughs> Hitchhike across the Does it normally go with ambition? Like I want to hitchhike and smoke weed. Right. And, and I got a little bit angry about it and I thought, you know, this sort of success guru bullshit that people get fed on a daily basis that, you know, get up at four o'clock in the morning, do 3000 pushups, get to work before everybody else, outwork everybody else, because obviously 90% of success is showing up and now you're successful. Well, that means you have a podcast with 3 million people. You're knocking down half a million a year. You know, you're wearing a black t-shirt. You've got some cool muscles and you're telling everybody how to do it. Well, how the fuck is that success? You know, and why is that the only version of success or why, why would you take my shocking statement of, wanting to hitchhike across America and and smoked up in California is not an ambition because it. I think that if you could just sit for a minute and say, hang on a minute, let's just go one layer deeper and let's go back to that kid sitting in England with no money, mm-hmm. an old motorcycle, scratching up money for some gas, petrol, as we would call it, no future, no job. The concept of going to America, hitchhiking 3,000 miles across this amazing country. Yeah. To sit on the beach, to smoke a joint and look at the girls that you've heard about in the Beach Boys or the Van Halen songs. Well, so is this the first big dream you had? I don't know if it was the first big dream, but it's like the, one of the more recognizable dreams. Yeah. Um, so you recognized a sense of like compassion in your life for others through abandoned children in London when you were a teenager, right? I don't know that I recognized it. I, I did it. And, no, I think I came out of that thinking, Hey, done that. Now let's have some fun. No, I don't think that was a catalyst for me to say, Hey, I'm going to live my life helping others. No, not at all. I think I was pretty selfish and complacent at that point. Um, but the point being about the ambition thing was, you know, to get out of England, I had to have credit. I had to have money. Mm -hmm. I had to have a backpack. I had to have cash for an airplane ticket. I had to have a visa to come to America. I had to have the way of supporting myself to actually hitchhike across America, which took weeks. And then when I was sat on the beach in California, I had to find the dope, look at the girls, right? There's a lot to unpack in that in terms of if, how do you do that? If you've no money, no job, you're living in a flat with no heat, you don't have much food. You can't even put petrol in your motorcycle. Yeah. And suddenly you're going to manufacture all those things. That takes ambition. Mm -hmm. And I think, Maybe that's not the ambition you want your kids to have or you don't think it's a great ambition. But for an unemployed person that's stuck in England in the damp and the rain, why is that not an ambition? And why is our stereotypical idea of ambition all about working every moment, getting up before everybody else, outworking everybody else, and that's success? Why is that success? That that is a success. That's that's one of the challenges I always had with success too. I appreciate what you're saying. It's really a difference between... Or I wonder what the difference is between what people define as success. And then it almost seems like there's something more important, which is like significance. Like, how do I find significance more than I find success? Like, how do I know that I'm making a difference? And you don't, I don't think you think about that when you're younger, but as my kids are now getting ready to go into high school and middle school, like I, I legitimately want them to have a dream, but it's not like, how it used to be like this very generic version of like, and I want them to be doctors and lawyers, kind of like you were saying or whatever the culture, I want them to do something that they're passionate about that they would be good at and they would find rewarding and they would enjoy their life, mm-hmm. which is 
not your typical version of what most people in America would say, like success is going to school, knowing what you want to do, like when you're six, like there's a lot of pressure on my kids to know exactly what they want to do in middle Mm -hmm. school and being on the right track and not missing a math class. And it's, and I try to tell them without being like disagreeable with their teachers, but it's okay that you don't know what you want to do. Like you might not know what you want to do when you're 18, let alone. And so many people go through situations and circumstances in their life, like halfway, halfway through their life where they completely change course. And does that mean that the first part of the life was a failure or it was necessary to get them to where they needed to be so that they could do this part? There's just, there's just a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of confusion about what success is, especially in America. Well, if you type in, you know, inspiration, success, or any of that stuff, and you think, okay, let's let's listen to what people are saying. They're all saying the same thing. You know, they've made it. They've got money. Mm-hmm. And they've been successful. They're maybe, you know, type A's. So they, you know, get up early in the morning and they work out harder than everybody else. And they outwork everybody else. And they got fucking lucky, right? They got a break. And that break made them become a radio star or a TV star or whatever they did and, and no disrespect to them. They put in the work, right? yeah. but, but the only people getting rich at those seminars are the ones giving the seminar because everybody showing up there, you're already wealthy. If you can afford to go see some motivational speaker, who's going to tell you how to get a little bit more rich or even more rich, you know, what are you there for? You drove your own car there, you were clothed, you, were, you had food, you had running water and electric light, you had an education, you've already got a job. You know, if you were sensible with your money, maybe you'd be in a better condition. Why do you need to go listen to some clown flapping his jaws for two hours, <laughs> stirring you up about how great you can be and how you got to just stop being lazy and you just got to stop and you got to fill every minute with activity. Yeah. You know, heaven forbid you'd sit on the crapper and think about something because you should be achieving, right? What is you- where I get all my thinking done? Mm. What would you say to somebody who's lazy and you see that, you know, maybe, maybe being lazy is the cause of their complaining and negative outlook on life. Like what would be a motivating statement? If you're going to be lazy, just enjoy it. Don't complain about it. (laughs) I've been pretty lazy for big periods of my time. You know I mean? Don't, don't complain. I mean, if you don't want to be lazy, don't be lazy. Yeah. I think I, I think I'm starting to understand what you're saying. So you had this dream that was your dream that was actually a big deal for you Mm -hmm. that sounded pretty countercultural or unimportant or unambitious to maybe some naysayers that you have in your life. I think it does sound, I think people initially have got a bit of a shock to it, you know, and, you know, obviously I'm a storyteller and I'm very, very aware of, you know, statements. I, I have a story that I tell is my favorite story about my best friend in life. And it's about him crapping his pants in Morocco. And it's actually the best pants shitting story in the whole world. In, in the world. I mean, I, I'm sure it is the best one I've heard. I don't, a big statement. It is. A yeah. Big you one. know, I don't, I don't often kind of come up with that type of statement, but this really is, <laughs> this is the best pant crapping story in the world. Let's hear it. Well, no, I'm not going to tell you because it's a long story. <laughs> the, the point of it is, is that, what I do when I tell that story is I talk about my friend. I say, I, I start the story by saying my best friend Woodley went to Morocco on a drug taking holiday. Boom. Oh my goodness me. We've got, suddenly we've got everybody's attention. Cause if I said, Oh, let me tell you the story about my buddy who went to Morocco and crapped his pants. And it's a great story. It doesn't have that shock factor because nobody wants to publicly admit that they would physically go to a foreign country just to take drugs. But how many fucking people do that? 
You know, they want to go to Thailand and get high. They want to go to Morocco and smoke dope. They want to go to India and get wasted. I mean, okay, this is what he wanted to do. That was his ambition at the time. And I know that when I make that statement about him going to Morocco on a drug-taking holiday, it gets people's attention because it's not how you would normally start that story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's making me understand is wanting to hitchhike across America and smoke dope in California. It's a bit of a shocking statement, but hopefully it allows me to bring people to a different level of thinking to where they can unpack that and go a bit deeper. Well, it's relatable, isn't it? Because people um, in my own life, I've imagined being somebody that I'm not in the way or or trying an identity or wearing the shoes for something that I thought that I would be happy in or a vision for myself. Right. If that included smoking pot, whatever it is, if it's wearing MC hammer pants, like in junior high school, I went through a phase where I wore MC hammer pants. Those why really, really, why didn't you take them off? I did. After still all. Wearing <laughs> I struggled. I had a, he's got a, patches, had like a jacket on and MC a, hammer pants. He's been out of high school. Long he's well dressed. It was the bottom of my like identity search crisis. And it was about three weeks in junior high school. And that, it was all uphill from there. I think I had a pair of hammer pants. Yeah. So did you make it to the beach? Did, did the dream come true? Yeah. Yeah. It was fantastic. Um, it was a bit of a story. We landed in New York, um, took a bus to Quebec and Calgary, hitchhiked across Canada, um, met Wibley um, in uh, Winnipeg, ended up in jail in Calgary. wasn't my fault, I must my add. Um, got out of jail, bought an old car. Wibley got deported. And then my <laughs> Is that mate, your British mate? Yeah. Oh, and my then God. My other, mate, my other mate, Wedgie and I drove the car um, all the way down the West Coast of America. And uh, we actually ended up in the middle of Watts in Los Angeles, which was a really interesting story. Um, but along the way, we went to uh, Northern California. And at one point, we picked up a hitchhiker. Mm. And he'd just been in some fight with some people. And his head looked like someone had been using it for baseball bat practice. But he had a backpack with like 60 pounds of pot in it. Hmm. So anyway, we had a good time with him. And we left him in San Francisco. And we had our envelope full of pot that he left with us kindly so yeah we were able to get to the beach around san diego and go there and get high so what do you think is the difference between because a lot of life is pretty just routine like wake up drive to work do the Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. have a meeting eat a sandwich Mm -hmm. go home do it again it's a story i'm not saying it's a good story Mm -hmm. but sometimes there's stories that define us like this was an adventure for you Mm -hmm. this wasn't just a story what do you think are the building blocks for an adventure that are missing out of just everyday life? Like, why is it that's the story that you wanted to share with us about the journey? Because I think people are influenced by the story that they hear. Yeah. And um, obviously the stories that they hear are, are premeditated by the corporations and media and company that wants them to get that message. They want them to buy that car. They want them to, I mean, listen to car ads. Oh my goodness me. I mean, talking about freedom and discovery and adventure and, and all I can hear is like, what, fucking 72 months of making a payment for that thing. So it's going to be worth nothing at the end of it. That's adventure and freedom. And all the ads were people in Jeeps and off-road vehicles going through incredible valleys and having these beautiful experiences, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and no, most you, of the time is driving to Starbucks. Well, you just, you go to work to pay for the thing. Yeah. Um, just to, you know, to tap into that, I, I was obviously the, you know, the subject of millennials comes up all the time and, and dealing with talking to my guy Terrence the other day with his youthful ambition and millennials and, you know, 
I think that I would like to to communicate more with millennials because I feel like they're more looking to live a, an experiential life mm-hmm. potentially the way yeah. that I did. Now, I would preface that by saying it's a good job everybody doesn't live like I do because, you know, next time you're injured and you need a doctor, luckily the guy wasn't off backpacking around and he was smoking dope. He went to medical school, mm. you know, so there's someone there to help you. But, yeah. but, but some people don't want to travel and that's okay. Some people do want to be doctors or lawyers or mechanics or whatever. There's, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I just think if you want to travel and you've got that gene or you've got that bug, I think you should have an opportunity to go and do it. I think a lot of people like to dump on millennials. They changed the age a while back. So I made the cutoff. So I'm like an old millennial. I'm like right on the edge of it. And, um, I know, uh, in various places where I've worked, I've heard people who are not of the millennial generation complain about the millennial generation and read the stats in a way that make them sound like, can you believe it? And this is the stat that I'm talking about specifically that millennials would rather have flexibility than more paycheck. Oh and, my um, goodness. Shock car, which is like crazy. But at, and you would think about it and say, Oh yeah. And people like to paint that as a picture of being like unambitious or whatever, but it's actually more adventurous. Like, yeah, I would like to do more things than spend all of my time earning money so that later I can do things. It is. It could also be a flat track path to socialism. <laughs> yeah, heaven forbid. Right? <laughs> well, what was interesting was I saw a post on Facebook and a friend of mine's father was complaining about an article that he had read in the, in the paper online about a young couple in Seattle who had millennials that had been sick of their jobs mm-hmm. and they had quit their jobs, got a sailboat, took off to sail the world that sunk and now they were trying to get going again. And so in launches my friend's father and, you know, this sort of group of pre-diabetic, you know, 60-year-old, 60-year-old guys going, oh, my goodness me. I mean, that's why the country's in a mess. I mean, they didn't like, I mean, what if we had said we didn't want to work when we were 26? Look out. I worked 80 hours a week. Well, I worked 120 hours a week. Well, I worked 300 hours a week. And they just started chiming in about, you know, what was wrong with society and why these millennials were going to ruin the country. And if you actually read the article, the millennials had said they were just tired of 75% of their earnings going towards supporting going to work. They lived in Seattle. It was expensive. By the time they had individual cars to get to work, by the time they bought the clothes to go to work and the food to go to work and the time, 75% of their income was devoted to going to work, to earn the money to have the house and the cars to go to work. And they got tired of that. And they said, we want to do something different. And as somebody who has traveled the world extensively, I can tell you, I would tell young kids, if you think traveling the world is some sort of easy, get out of jail free card that you avoid hard work, well, you can think again. You will work way harder try to travel the world and you'll ever work going to work a job. You don't get weekends off. You're on it the whole time. And, but I think, you know, this is the problem here is you've got these old guys bitching away at these millennials because they're missing the point of what the millennials wanted. They wanted freedom. They wanted adventure. They weren't saying we don't mm-hmm. want to work. I mean, yeah. building a sailboat going around the world is probably mm-hmm. three times the work of a conventional job. Yeah. yeah. But they, they didn't want to just work to work. And I think, you know, the older generation, that's what they've done. They just worked to yeah. work. Yeah. So that's the, you keep using that word adventure. So what, what was the tilt? You, you made it, you made it here. You fulfilled the ambition of your dream. You got to do what you want to do. And now what caused you to get involved into the lives of abandoned and at risk children throughout the world? 
Well, and I, tell us a little bit about Wellspring International Outreach. So I left my partner um, that I was traveling with in San Diego, hitchhiked to Florida. Um, I just made a decision at that point to give up cigarettes and drugs. I knew I'd, it, I just knew it wasn't a good thing. Um, it was something that we kind of fell into as kids and it was fun. And I'm not saying it wasn't, but I knew that wasn't going to be what I needed to go forward in my life. And so, um, of course, you're a bigger storyteller and living a wild life, ended up living with a bank robber, had to leave the country. It's <laughs> not the story, but, um, ended up in central South through Central America. This was the time of the Sandinista Contra war. And, um, you know, I ended up dealing money on the black market in Nicaragua and hanging out and having a good time. And I met the famous uh, author, Shelby Tucker. He was one of the most significantly traveled men on the face of the earth. And Shelby kind of took me under my wing, under his wing, sorry. He lived in Oxford in England. So I would visit with him frequently on my return. And he sort of, the gospel according to Shelby Tucker, if you want to use a biblical sense, is, you know, he, he preached being frugal. He preached being disciplined about your travel. And so I started looking at society very differently. You know, I'd grown up with very, very little unemployed. I mean, yeah. my mother had been on welfare. So we'd never had a lot anyway. And then I started looking at people and I started looking at all the stuff they were buying and things they were doing. And they'd say, oh, you know, I'd love to travel. Well, no, you wouldn't love to travel. You love to buy things and you buy them on credit. So you pay three times the value for them. So all you do is go to work to buy this stuff. And here I was with a backpack and I was off roaming around the world traveling. Was this before like the notion of uh, minimalism, which is getting popular and talked about a lot today? I would imagine so. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, it's just the way I had lived. So through these travels, um, obviously I was having a good time. There was something inside me knew that I needed to change that. Mm -hmm. And in, in, it's, it's another long story, but I was going to head to South America in eight, 1988, broke my back, had some pretty, you know, pretty horrendous back surgery. But by 95, I was back on a motorcycle and blasting through South America. And that was where I met Father Giovanni. So what I didn't know at the time was I was, I guess I was born to be a storyteller and a journalist, mm -hmm. and a, you know, a writer. And Father Gio basically told me his life story in those three days that we hung out in Peru. And I left and I never saw him alive again. But that was really the biggest catalyst, I think, for change in my life. Like, shit, I got to do something. Yeah. Know? I was so, I had so much admiration for this man and the work that he did in Peru. And, you know, you can live in your society and you can be popular and you can have your cars and you can have your things. But to see this guy that had a dirty pair of jeans and old work boots and old jacket and an old motorcycle and watch him walk into a village and just kids come flocking out. I mean, he's like the Pied Piper and just see the yeah. love and joy that he had and, I don't know. There was just something very enviable about his life. And that's really, I think, what got me on the path to Wellspring yeah. and where I'm at today. Or reconnect to be maybe back to, the, back to those Blue Peter days. Yeah. So how did, how did Wellspring come about? Um, so what I love about your story and you have the characteristic that I admire in a lot of people that we get to talk to is that there's some people who just aren't content to listen to other people's stories, but there's some kind of gene or bug or... Mm -hmm. And it's, I wish that it was common. I wish that like everybody did it, but I think a lot of us are more, more wired to binge watch Netflix than go out and, and live a story or, or tell a story or be a part of a story. And it's, it's funny. Everybody has a different catalyst. I mean, it, this father Giovanni, you got to spend three days with him, and it sounds like it just tilted your life mm -hmm. and, and 
realigned you towards something that's like, oh, that was it. Do you think you were always looking for that? Or do you think that was just everything that happened was necessary for you to get to that point so that you could hear it? What do you think? I think it's a good question because how would the story have been if I'd met Father Giovanni in the way that I met him, if I hadn't watched Blue Peter, hadn't spent my summers raising money for kids, hadn't right. done the voluntary work and hadn't lived in an environment where my family and friends were conscious of raising money for those in need. Um, would I have seen him? Would I have taken the message or would it have, you know, that seed that was inside me, maybe from childhood, would it have started to grow? I don't know. That's a, um, that's a good question. I don't know if it was something innate in me that I would have done anyway, or mm. it was a learned behavior from my childhood. I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting because, um, I left Father Giovanni in Peru, not knowing what, it, I mean, I had no understanding of the meeting. Yeah. I had no understanding of the change. And I went back to my job in Florida and the guy that I worked for is very egotistical. Um, he, it's interesting because um, he's developed a technique for me that I help people with in jobs. And I call it the handlebars hanging up the wrong way syndrome. Hmm. And I would work for him and go to work before him. He would be drunk and, you know, staying home screwing his girlfriend. And we would all go to work to get his business going. And then when he arrived, instead of looking at the numerous things that we had done to keep the business running correctly, he would find the one thing wrong mm. that we had done. And I remember specifically one time I'd hung a set of handlebars up the wrong way after processing thousands of dollars of parts and orders. And, and at the time I would take it to heart and try harder. And then was I realized that this was just his management style. He would always find fault with something to keep, to mm -hmm. be oppressive and to keep the pressure on. And just, that was just his ego. So when we came back, he traveled with me to Peru. Um, I think there was a little bit of an ego battle because traveling in Central and South America, he didn't speak Spanish. I, I'm a better navigator, a better communicator. So he had to obviously follow my lead a bunch of times and didn't like that. So he changed my job around when I got back. He needed some control. And I was not in the space of, okay, I'm happy about this. And a guy walked into the motorcycle shop and he said, hey, Neil, I just spent $5,000 buying Chrome for my Harley. And without stopping having some sort of Tourette's mind, I said, well, you're a fucking idiot. And I realized you can't say that to customers in retail. Oh, God. No, so anyway. Um, well, not a lot. You, I mean, you can say it. Not every day. <laughs> Depends on yeah. which dealership you're working in, right? So anyway, I, um, I made a decision on the spot to quit my job. And uh, I put my shit in storage and I had a pile of money at the time. I just, I'd not long sold a house and was getting ready to buy another house. And for some reason I took $5,000 and flew to Europe. And again, it was like the father Geo thing. I didn't realize until afterwards that I was making this militant statement. Mm. And I think in my brain at the time, I'm looking at this guy going, I just spent six weeks in central and South America riding a motorcycle from Guatemala to Peru. I just had this, you know, fell in love with the Ravenhead beauty in Panama city. I'd met father Gio. I'd crashed. We'd run from the army, you know, people, all these incredible adventures, like for $1,500 and you're bolting shit on a Harley for 5,000 bucks. Hmm. You know, like what, what's yeah. going on here? That's what I read a lot in magazines about motorcycles and cameras, right? Because you can buy, a little bit of kit and spend the rest of it on traveling to make pictures. Or you could spend it on a 
smaller displacement motorcycle, like a CRF 250 or something, and then go just do the trails, right? And have more money in your pocket. So there's this balance, isn't there? I, you know, I just know what I did. So, so unknowing to me, I took this $5,000 and I went to Europe and, um, I didn't want to cash the money in. So I convinced my mother to loan me my grandmother's funeral money. Oh gosh. So I, you know, granny wasn't going to pop her clogs anytime soon. And it was a bit of a, bit of a wrestling match with my mother, but I convinced her, my mother would put this money away to bury my grandmother, you know? And so I convinced her to loan me the money to buy a bike. And I said, look, my mother, I'm off to Europe. I'll be back soon with the granny's funeral money and jumped on the bike and headed off to Europe. And about six months later, I came back and um, I spent my $5,000. Um, I traveled to the four corners of Europe. I rode to 23 countries, went 17 and a half thousand miles. You had all sorts of adventures between the Arctic Circle and, you know, out onto the eastern side of Turkey and the Syrian border and back across through the tree for southern Spain, Portugal, saw Africa. And, you know, I did all this on $5,000 and it's only with sort of hindsight looking back, I think I was just being militant about that guy blowing his $5,000 on mm -hmm. Chrome. Although, yeah, if that makes him happy, it's his choice, but yeah, it yeah. wasn't my choice. So I'm interested in how you, how you got from this rebellious Neil Bailey to this motorcycle journalist, respected producer of content, uh, trusted traveling um, reviewer and art writer of articles in major motorcycle magazines. I mean, this stuff is, to me has always been so exciting because I've tried to bridge that gap, find a way to mesh the, the motorcycle, the passion for them with that. So can you talk a little bit about how you develop those relationships to, to call and get motorcycles and be invited to Morocco for reviews? How did this, how did you make these relationships and what have you seen as valuable in, in, in being a partner in this stuff? I think it, um, we all have decisions to make in life. And when we look back, the decisions we make will help, maybe help us with our history. And I sat looking at the lights of Tarifa in Northern Africa for three nights, uh, sorry, Al Al um, Algeria and across the, across from Spain. And the question in my head was, do I continue into Africa and keep riding? And I had enough money and keep going. And have more cool stories at the pub and more cool snapshots and more travel experiences. So at this point, you're just living it up experiences, right? You're not yeah. really sharing anything. Okay. No, no, there was no sort of plan. Or do I go home to America and go to go to business school, learn how to use computers because computers were coming. So at this point, you'd become a U.S. citizen already? I'm a resident alien. A resident alien. Yeah. You don't look like an alien. <laughs> You look, stay long enough. You look, <laughs> you look a bit like a movie star. You know you have the X Factor, right? The X Factor. Probably more like a hemorrhoid commercial <laughs> star. <laughs> well, anyway, so you made so this. I, so I made this pivotal decision that I wouldn't go to Africa. I would return home to America and stop traveling. And you know, back to your thing about you know, selling your motorcycles to get all this equipment to do your podcast. I don't think it's a bad thing when you make that a value to decision to move your career forward. Mm -hmm. You know, I've watched your career for a long time. You know, Josh and I have known each other for some time and you were certainly layering and building and, and adding arrows to your quiver all the time and your skill set. Mm -hmm. So just mm -hmm. a quick sideline. I don't think yeah. so. I think you know, for you to be here is a great place for you because you're a, good motorcyclist you're a great rider you're going to come back to it well thanks like i think you're yeah. making i think you're making the right decision at yeah, this moment yeah, yeah. um Agreed. 
but to your question, you know, how did I parlay this to a career in motorcycling? So I came home to America and um, decided to get some education in computers because computers were coming. Oh my goodness. Does anyone remember when there wasn't computers, you know? Mm -hmm. So I decided I needed to learn to type and become literate. So I went to a, it's called a business technology school. It was actually a secretarial course, but the good news was I was the only guy in there. So it was a good time. And I came out understanding computers and um, decided, you know, that I needed to do something to enhance this career. And quite by chance, I read an ad in a Fast Bites magazine about going to India and doing a ride in the Himalayas to raise money for cancer victims. My kid's mother at the time, she treats cancer patients and I'm a traveler and a motorcyclist and all this, and this is what we need to do, right? We need to, yeah. go to go to India, do this ride, raise money for people that need it. Mm. And I can learn the ropes on how I'm going to start this career. Mm. So off to India, we went, we spent about $10,000 of our own money um, to do this. But you had a vision of what career to start. What was that vision? The crazy part about it all is, is my idea originally was I wanted to ride the Silk Road to China. Mm. And I wanted to develop a teacher training program to educate young children about travel and adventure and do it by satellite images where they could travel with us. And this is before cell phones and then, you know, internet was in this new phase. And mm -hmm. so I couldn't actually get to do that. Um, mm -hmm. But I did go to India and, you know, Mark Tuttle, editor of um, Rider Magazine, took the story. So I was very lucky because my first ever travel story that I did, I wrote and got published yeah. in Rider magazine, which is a prestigious American oh, yeah. motorcycle magazine. And I had a wonderful mentor at the time, a lady called Binnie Williams. And her and her husband had packed it all in and built a sailboat and traveled the world. And I just loved it dearly, her husband. And so I wrote this story for the magazine and I dutifully trotted off down to Binnie's house to show her my findings. And she read it and she said, it's shit, rewrite it. <laughs> how, how valuable are mentors? You mentioned a mentor in the... <laughs> oh, she was amazingly valuable. The good news was, was she didn't say shit, rewrite it and leave me alone. She said, look, this is what you need to do. So I went home and rewrote it and she approved it. And I submitted it and Mark Tuttle ran it in the magazine. And so then, you know, you said, how did I get my career going? Well, I started my career in motorcycle journalism. Now, you know, my name's Neil Bailey. I'm taking some courses at college and I've written a story and I like motorcycles. <laughs> you know, fuck off. <laughs> no one was interested in that shit. So I rewrote it. You know, you're a writer, right? So yeah. I, I changed my story. I said, hi, my name's Neil Bailey. I'm a freelance motorcycle journalist. You might have seen my work in Rider magazine. <laughs> the one story that I've had, right? Um, you know, what do you pay for a story? And then this conversation was how much they paid for stories. And I asked about the submission guidelines and bingo, people wanted to start buying my stories. Mm. So, you know, that was how it started. And, and one what, thing just led to the other. Did you include cameras in that India trip? Or when did you first start shooting with the, with a camera and doing that as well? Yeah, we had taken a slide film camera with us to India mm -hmm. and, you know, the pictures weren't great, but they were good enough for the magazine. Mm, got it. And then I think, you know, things come along in your life that, I think if we're attentive to them, you know, Mike Vaughn, who was then the CEO of Triumph, kind of took me under his wing. Mm. And um, what year was that era? What era? What Triumph era was that? 2001. Oh, good era. 2000, 2001. Some, some and triples. Uh, yes, yeah, so I was very, very lucky because, um, you know, I was working for a free paper at the time. That led me to a guy called Kenny Stewart, who was a rep who would loan me Triumphs so I could ride. Mm. That led me to Mike Vaughan, who immediately took a shining to me. Mm -hmm. And he invited me to every single press launch at that point.
point. Mm. And I traveled with him to England and he just, I, I guess he saw something in me. There you go. And he was the guy that actually coined the term ninja for Kawasaki motorcycles when he was with Kawasaki. Is that right? Pretty famous. You knew the guy who coined the ninja. So anyway, thankfully to Mike Vaughan, it got me to the press introduction. When I was there, I was at the table. Now I'm at the table with the editors, the other magazines. And, you know, I was able to sell them work and that translated into other manufacturers. Now you've been on a motorcycle on a magazine cover, haven't you? Many, many. Yeah, I thought so. Um, so you mentioned Triumph and that's a special brand. Is that your favorite motorcycle brand? What would you, because of the heritage, what do you think? You just need to refer to me as my angel as a cover boy. <laughs> <laughs> I do love Triumphs because I'm English and uh, I do own a couple of Triumphs. So you do own a couple. You own some pretty badass Triumphs, right? What are they? I have a 97 T595 mm-hmm. that I customize and I have a 2008 1050 speed trip. Beautiful. Yellow and red, right? Yellow and red. Oh yeah. yeah. So. Are we going to see those today? We are. Yeah. I think we should have a look at them. So yeah. So Mike Vaughn, huge, huge help. And then I just, you know, just, I, you know, put my head down and worked and, um, just, you know, started testing bikes and traveling and, and it was an interesting time then, you know, the internet was just coming along where manufacturers, when I started writing for magazines, they, they wouldn't invite an internet website to a press launch because they didn't believe in the internet. Hmm. Wow. And I had fathomed out this niche that um, I guess nobody else had fathomed out. I found these free papers um, when I was traveling mm-hmm. and I started submitting my work to all these free papers because the free papers couldn't get access to press bikes. So if they wanted a review of the latest bike, they had to buy it from me because they, they were too small in the circulation to warrant the manufacturers sending them. So I had this sort of syndicate of free papers. So now all of a sudden I became extremely popular to the manufacturers because they could invite me and I would get, they would get all these magazines for the price of their invite. Hmm. And that was kind of my, um, are there any highlights of your motorcycle journalist career that you could share with us? I think meeting Josh Manning. Oh gosh. I read about you taking a trip through the Alps and you ended up going with some of the members of Hoobastang. I did. Yeah. And, um, that was a fantastic trip. And actually if anybody is interested or your music buff, go search Hoobastang's you need to be here. And it's a song that they, they wrote after riding with me in the Alps. And vroom, vroom. It's, a, it's a beautiful motorcycle song. It really is. Yeah. It is. If you ride a motorcycle, you'll relate to that song. I know. We listened to it on the way here. I'd never heard it. And it was like, why, why have I never heard this? Yeah. Like, why isn't it like this anthem for motorcycle yeah. riders? I don't know. Um, yeah. Chris, um, Chris Hess and Doug Robb from uh, Hoobastank are just, Two really, really amazing guys. I've known them for a lot of years. We travel together. Whenever I'm in California, I'll, you know, try and go see Chris or stay with him. And, uh, you know, fantastically hardworking individuals. You know? Yeah. Well, that's what it takes, doesn't it? Hard work. Um, I don't know. They, you know, they had tremendous success about 10 years ago and they're still touring. They're in England at the moment too. Are they? Mm-hmm. But we had a fa- fabulous time and, and, and a very, very interesting twist of fate. The lead singer of Hoobastank is half brothers with the BMW designer, David Robb. Hmm. Well, he's no longer the BMW designer up until about 2011, I think. Oh, yeah. So we had this really, really cool connection where we got to go to the BMW Museum and ride BMWs. And and uh, David Robb himself is a stunt pilot. So, you know, we got to all flying upside down and just, just had an absolute... Have you, has anyone ever in the industry ever referred to you as the John Beck of the East Coast? 
No, no, that would be that'd be like an honor, right? It would be, it would be right. Did I just blow out there? Was that a plosive? Yep. He got. He mentioned the word John Beck and got all excited. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Neil Bailey I know right here. <laughs> Oh, he's, good. A, he's a lovely fellow, John Beck. He is a lovely fellow. When I, when I moved to the East coast, back to the East coast, I felt like you, I could tell my wife, I said, this, he's the John Beck of the East coast, because I always talked so highly of John Beck on the West coast. These guys. I, my favorite John Beck story. And, and I have a few of them is he's absolutely brilliant. He, Joe, just think, just so you know, John Beck is a brilliant guy. And I must have had that look on my face like, what? Yeah, well, just, just, <laughs> like he, when people he, talk about sports around me, I had that look on my face. He's so intelligent and all the, all the things you'd want to be in a dude, right? Like he's the guy that women want to be with and the men want to be, all that stuff. But the, he's a cool guy. He's really super smart. And he's found a way to just make a great living in the motorcycle industry. Right, Neil? He has. And one of the greatest stories about John Beck is how he went to Mexico as an illegal alien and worked for nothing. <laughs> I kind of know the story, how you met his wife in Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> is that part of is that good? Yeah. It's just, it's just absolutely brilliant. Oh yeah. my God. He like smuggles himself into Mexico and works illegally for no money. In third world countries. Third world countries. <laughs> brilliant. Yeah. He finds the, he's location scouting secretly. I think, you know, yeah, he's always yeah. in this Baja, you know, finding whale bones and everything. So, uh, your adventure had you go borrow some money from your mother (laughs) to get back over to Europe, have some more adventures. You came back, you made the decision to get involved. You mentioned early on, uh, that father, uh, what was his name again? Father Giovanni, father Giovanni. (coughs) And he was in that city that you currently have been doing so much or investing so much work in. So after I left Peru, Father Giovanni and I wrote email letters. Uh, sorry, email. We wrote airmail letters. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's get that straight. <laughs> Come on, you old fossil. Get it straight. <laughs> I've landed on my head a lot. So <laughs> we wrote to each other. You know, we were pen pals. And and, uh, and I actually can show you all the letters if you like. I just started collating them recently. And I've got a beautiful four-page transcript of his decision to become a priest. And, and I knew it verbatim, actually, which is interesting. Um. So then, you know, around early 2000s with the kids and this new career in journalism that was now starting to spread into television, um, you know, I just didn't pay any attention that the letters from Father Gio weren't coming. Hmm. I was really, really busy. I was just, I was all over the world, as Josh will know at that time. I mean, I could be testing hmm. a bike in Phillip Island. I could be making a TV show in Scotland. I mean, it was just, it was just full on, you know, I just, I lived out of a, a suitcase and, um, it was just a, just a wonderful time period in my career that, you know, it's so much fun and adventure the whole time. And then around about 2005, I get one of these form letters that older people used to write where they, you know, they type it out on a piece of paper and print it and send it to everybody with an individual hello and goodbye on the bottom. And it was talking about the death of Father Gio. And I was like, death of Father Gio? When did he die? And he'd actually died in 2001. Mm. And what had happened was, um, the big earthquake hit Mokegwa and actually I'd like to talk a little bit about this in a moment. Mokegwa has just had a really bad flood. So I might be hauling ass for Peru any minute now. Mm. Um, and Father Gio was running supplies back up to the village of Kurumas back and forward. And mercifully, I have no idea how this happened because trucks in Peru never go empty. They've always got people in them. Mm. People always double up on lifts and lift shares. Somehow he was traveling alone and got smashed by a truck and killed instantly. And um, so obviously huge tragedy for his village. And 
and the people that he had cared for around. So um, this letter came from his mother. I connected with his sister. And so I call his sister up one day and I say, this is Neil Bailey. I'm one of the crazy gringos. Oh yeah. My brother talked about you guys and she knew all about the crazy gringos. And I said, yeah, I'm going to write a book and make a movie about his life one day, which, you know, this is what everybody want, wants to hear, right? When they meet some nutcase on the phone and, <laughs> and she's like, Oh, well, well yeah, okay. Right. Well done. Well played son. That's a great idea. You know? <laughs> so anyway, um, over the course of the next couple of years, we, kept in touch and we kept chatting and and then i really found out about the need that was going on at hogar berlin uh, which was one of the properties that that geo had looked after so we put a medical mission together in mm -hmm. 2008 and we went down there and treated 50 kids and took a doctor and and i learned about the place and and that was what then that was my decision to start wellspring i came home and said we've got to do something and uh so i started wellspring international outreach and started fundraising yeah and so when when did you organize the the ride? You had a, a TV show, right? Yeah. So basically what happened in 2008, I was doing a television show with Dennis Gage. I don't know if you know Dennis Gage. He has a show called My Classic Car. Mm -hmm. has a handle, yeah. He has a handlebar mustache and a flat cap. And um, mm -hmm. he's a pretty well-known motorcar celebrity. Oh, yeah. And I had started producing television for him for a show called Corbin's Ride On for a number of years or so field producer and then eventually a host and i talked dennis into doing a tv show and it took me about a year to talk him into it and um i used the immortal shelby tucker line when i finally got him i said dennis could you live with yourself if you didn't do this <laughs> well neil i've decided i can't live with myself if i don't do it so <laughs> off to scotland we went and that then became the show tripping on two wheels oh and Trippin' on Two Wheels, I think, was a really wonderful, wonderful television show. A lot of people really loved oh, it. Yeah. Um, the final episode, or the last one we made, we might make some more. It's actually my son's in it. Cool. Um, but if you watch the chronology of Trippin' on Two Wheels, you'll see Dennis's young son, Sam, growing up through the show. And I think people really liked it. And it was a very innocent show. It was just a bunch of clowns trucking around on motorcycles, having a good time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anyone can watch it. It's a family show. And yeah, I'd do a few stupid things, crashing bikes, pick up some hitchhikers, get caught by the police and stuff. But nothing was horribly radical. And so for me, it was a great show. It just wasn't digging in deep enough. So I had this situation in 08 where I started this charity and I've got this TV show. Yeah. And I had this light bulb moment just a few feet from where we're at my door, I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a TV show about riding around the world, raising money for orphans. Hmm. And I had a young roommate at the time. And I said, I'm going to Peru. Fuck it. I'm going. I said, I'm going to pack a bag, take a camera, get a rain suit, rent a bike. I'm going to go map Peru, write a story, go to the TV network. Cause I was working for the TV network at the time and say, this is the show we need to make. Hmm. And we're going to raise a bunch of money for the kids. And that was the catalyst for the Neil Bailey rides that started in 2009 and the show aired in 2013 on speed. Very good. And it's available as a documentary. At this time? You can now watch the episodes on my YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Hang on a second. Hashtag shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> Not literally that hashtag, but I'll plug it. What's your YouTube channel? No, Give it to us. Neil Bailey rides. Neil Bailey ride. I should have given him sleepy times here. <laughs> <laughs> chamomile, man. I'm drinking chamomile over here. 
Yeah. On the way here, I found a documentary. Was it a different version or all three put together on iTunes called Neil Bailey Rides? The documentary on iTunes is Neil Bailey Rides 2. Neil Bailey Rides 2. Yeah, that's what I made with my crazy friend, Christian Scranton. Okay. So it's the same format. We ride yeah. around Peru and take people to the orphanage. So the whole concept of Neil Bailey Rides is to take people on an adventure and let them see the developing world, um, let them get an experience, but then you know take them to an orphanage place yeah. of need. And hopefully they'll give something back. Yeah. You, you, you started touching on the story of what's happening in Peru as we speak, like what's going on over there right now? Ah, what's going on in Peru. So there's been a big flood and, um, it's just basically torched everything. Um, that's come through the farm. The animals are alive, but they need food and all the sisters and the kids have had to evacuate. Mm -hmm. So, um, some of the old boys, the kids that grew up there, Oscar, Freddie and them, they, they, they stay close to the home and still work. They're all now in their 40s. Um, they're getting bulldozers in there and tractors, and they're just trying to drag out the stones and the trees. What's and, your line of communication on? How are you getting information on a daily basis? Um, I can get it through WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger through the sisters. They have data plans on their phone, and they'll, okay. they'll, they'll keep me up to speed. And then I've got a team in AeroKeeper. So I'm just standing by if I have to go down there. I'm just trying to fundraise at the moment to get some more money together. So what can I, our listeners do to support, to help out at this time if they're inclined to do so? I mean, if anybody wanted to donate, just go to my foundation, Wellspring, Wellspring International Outreach. It's actually wellspring-outreach.org online. Got it. Or, I mean, maybe you guys give it some love. And yeah, I mean, money is money is needed. Yeah, yeah. we'll put a link up at the bottom here. Tell you what I'm thinking of doing. Um, for all you adventure travelers out there, um, the tail end of April, the beginning of May, I'm thinking of putting a special Wellspring ride together. Um, a hundred percent of the proceeds will go to Wellspring. So I'll, I'll volunteer my time to go down and lead you guys around. We'll do my regular tour around Peru. So we get to see Machu Picchu and Lake Titicaca and ride the BMWs. And then we'll just extend it out and spend two or three days rolling our sleeves up and doing some work at the farm. And uh, you can raise that money by donations because we're a 501c3 tax deductible. So it's a charitable program. Well, there you so go. If you're looking for an adventure. If you're looking for an adventure, I'm going to put one together. And how many seats, how many bikes are available for that? I will take as many as we can take. All right. Probably you, take a dozen people. They're from a local BMW rental house sort of thing there? Yeah. Or? My buddy Lars Peru Motors has a ton of bikes. And, he, yeah. and, and, you know, big shout out to Lars if you're in Peru. I mean, he usually gives us a truck for Wellspring is a great break on bikes for Wellspring people. Yeah. He's been really, really supportive of Wellspring down there. That's great. Yeah. I like kind of the, the theme that's been popping up and what you're talking about, which is you seem to like to take people on an adventure, mm. like the idea, instead of just telling them about an orphanage, an orphanage mm. where you can help out some people and make mm. a difference in their life. You organized a TV show based on like what you were good at <laughs> and the leverage that you had so that you could raise awareness mm -hmm. and find a way to include people in taking that. I watched the trailer. You found like three different people. Mm -hmm. Will they make it? It looked like a fun, a fun TV show. Yeah. And, um, it reminded me of a, the, the Steinbeck quote where it says people don't take trips, trips take people. Mm. Um, and I think that's, what's so fascinating about, travel and taking people on a journey is because it's more than just making them aware of something. You're providing an opportunity for somebody to experience a catalyst in their life. Like when you met father Giovanni or like when you first experienced blue Peter and you're inviting people into, well, what would your life look like if you could look outside of your current situation, your circumstances and change, and change your story. Yeah. And like, that's a great question for all of us. Like when we're thinking about our lives. Where are we asking people to go? Where are we taking people? Are you, are you telling a story that's, 
that's interesting enough and compelling that people would want to join? And would that be good? Hmm. I, I think that's really beautiful that you said that. Um, yeah. What, what is the story that we're telling? And, you know, I think back to that sort of the, the success guru idea, this narrow trenched idea of what success is and what life is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't think kids should go traveling. I don't think kids should do philanthropy. I don't think they should live. Anybody should live like I do at all. But I do think kids should have a menu option if they decide that's what they want to do, to do it. And we should help them do it if they want to, because I don't think anybody can say what I do is wrong. You know, it, it's not wrong. It's just different. Yeah, and, and and if it fulfills me and it fulfills others, why shouldn't we do it? There's a lot of careers. There's a lot of paths that you can run down. If we all did the same thing, it would be very boring. Very boring. And um, if you're fulfilled in what you're doing, that's great. Yeah, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You I know? think that's the key. Fulfillment is more important than success. Because mm. success can change in in the situation where you might have a goal. Like let's say your only goal that you ever had was to smoke pot in California. Well, then your life was over. You did it. Yeah. But oh. goals change. Success yeah, changes. The definition of great, success changes. Great point. Great, great pickup there. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had a new goal mm-hmm. and then I had new, and you know, I have new goals every day now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does, does your ambition always have to be one ambition? Can it change? You know, can we grow? I mean, yeah. I don't know. And I think especially so with like millennials, the average person now changes job 12 times. Mm-hmm. My grandfather worked in, in the same factory and retired there yeah. and had a, had a version of a life that isn't an option for a lot of people now, mm-hmm. which is, you know, get the golden watch and, and, um, got to enjoy his retirement, had a woodworking shop, mm-hmm. awesome guy, but, um, not really a common path anymore. And stuff is always changing. And the, the thing that probably isn't changing is that every person's on a quest to find fulfillment and meaning and make a difference, um, in an area that they're passionate about. Yeah. I have a similar story to you, Neil, in that I daydreamed about California and growing up on a farm in North Carolina and just one day did it and went against the grain because my dad had sold insurance. Like my grandfather sold insurance and they'd built a nice book of business. And eventually I tried and it just wasn't, that thing that I was meant to go down. And that was a challenging situation, even in my relationship with my dad, but it was in the, in the end, it's been a good thing to um, go about that course. And I've made some foolish decisions and, and hurt other people and good. burnt bridges good on the foolish decisions. You know, I think the hardest thing in, in failing forward is, is I think the hardest thing in failing forward is burning bridges, using other people. And then being just being so selfish in that time of life where you're figuring things out. Those, those are the hardest things. But what I think is nice um, as we sit here is I can clearly think back to conversations I've had with Josh, you know, many, many years ago about his decision and path to be freelance. How do you do it, Neil? How do you make it? How do I mm-hmm. go on? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're sitting here today and, you know, you're raising a wonderful son. You've got a great marriage. You know, you obviously got a fantastic partner in your podcast business. Your movies are great. Your The videos and documentaries you're making are compelling. Um, I just asked Josh to get involved in a new project that I'm working on because I want his talent, I want his skill, and I want his passion yeah. um, for the project. It's a very, very important project to me. And, yeah. and Josh is the key that I need for action video and 
passion yeah. and commitment and you're here mm-hmm. and you'll continue to be here and you continue to grow and that that worry and concern you had years ago when we talked i mean hopefully you don't have that now because you've you're still here and you're still doing it and i think that it could be josh can be very inspirational for younger people to look at someone yeah, who's well, leading a not conventional life he's yeah. following his dream he's yeah. following his passion and Maybe it doesn't always work out. Maybe your passion to be an actor didn't work out. Maybe your passion to be, mm-hmm. but you tried it, you did it, and you've got all those tools in your tool. Well, I'm thankful because I'm I'm in a, a family situation where I didn't have that for a while. And and putting things, one thing I've learned in my life at 41 is that I I put first things first and what I felt was uh, the order that that God wanted me to value. And in that, I I am finding the things that I sacrificed, that I let the hand go of, as I put these other things in order, family first, you have two children, you know what it's like, that's family first, then the other things fall into place, right? You, and, and what I'm amazed at and inspired by is how those things, motorcycles, for example, more even deeper than that, really, it's dreaming about doing something in the motorcycle industry, as wild and wacky as that seems, and marrying the talent of being on camera or around it or whatever, and then leaving that world, you think LA is that world in, in Hollywood and in the motorcycle industry, right? So I had to let go of that idol and then come into North Carolina. I'm like, I meet Neil and um, people like Ian and uh, people that are doing things. And and Neil was like what I called the East Coast John Beck, which was sort of my my idol and friend there. And now I'm relating with someone like Neil and doing projects with Neil. That seals the deal. I'm, we're making things together. And that's very fulfilling. It's passion project, not money driven. We're making stuff and we're putting it out there to share. And that feels so good. It's like this podcast, yeah. we're making something from our passion and it benefits the world. It benefits our listeners. It benefits us because we're yeah. giving, we're sharing. When we had the idea for the show, I just didn't have anything that I was doing to for passion. And so it was, and I remember Josh called and he was all excited and he like, he talked really excitedly and then he almost apologizes and oh, I'm in the same boat. I'm crazy excited about this. It's really exciting. And it's great well, to be excited doing about something. doing something doing that something, you want to yeah. do. You're letting the cat out of the cage. Yeah. I just love it. The idea is guys who do stuff. It's not guys who make money or how to make money. You know? <laughs> God, is it, doesn't there's, there's a lot of that, right? In doesn't Barnes it just get so old and tiring? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it does. I don't know. I, I, it's so difficult for me. You know, you, you have these very, very conflicting ideas that everybody, you know, like I said, I really, really try to hold fast that people shouldn't do what I do, but I just think about, I don't know. I mean, I could think of a thousand moments that I've had when I've been traveling, you know, anywhere in the world. And, and you just couldn't trade that for me. Yeah. Like, why would you trade that? Yeah. Like, what has that television got for you? What has that suit got for you? What has that car got for you? What does that meal in the restaurant? I mean, you're sitting there in some fancy restaurant, eating your bit of dead animal baked potato and paying $150 for the privilege. Like, what does that give you? And I guess people get something from that. I just, I don't know what that is. I guess maybe I'm lucky or hopeful that I don't ever get to feel like I need that. You know, yet when I am in a village in Africa or I'm on top of a mountain in Africa or I'm riding across the Andes in in Peru, you know, just that, I don't know, the feeling that it gives me is just so incredible. And and I haven't found anything else in life that gives that for me. So, so last question, what's next? Well, do I tease off what we're doing next, Josh, or do we save that? Let's save that for another podcast. Let's save that for another one. That's let's, so let's, exciting. Let's give, that, some, let's give, yeah. Yeah, let's give some teasers that what I'm going to do is. Um, it does include body parts. If you think about that, 
body parts. Motorcycle body parts. <laughs> Motorcycle body parts. Um, well, what am I going to do next? I'm going to continue to keep running Wellspring. Um, I've been working an awful lot in the last few years internally um, mm -hmm. on, I don't know, trying to be a better person, trying to improve my life and trying to give more to my foundation, expect less from others. Um, it's always an ongoing process for me. Um, so we have expanded to Kenya. We're working in South Africa and Peru. So I want to keep doing that. Um, you know, maintain my relationships. I mean, this is brilliant for me to be able to speak today, you know, to maybe impact, you know, your listeners to, you know, I'm just a you know kid that grew up in old town and painted. I mean, we grew up on welfare I and mean, we didn't have anything. I mean, I don't have a great education. I'm not very smart. You know, I just, I was always passionate about what I wanted to do and got, got really lucky, I guess. But, um, my new project that I'm going to be working on with Josh, and maybe we'll come back and do a podcast specifically about that project. Um, over the last 10 years, one of the things I probably heard the most is, you know, when are you going to write a book, Neil? When are you going to tell your story? And, you know, I've lived with bank robbers and shared hotel rooms with convicted guns, drug smuggling terrorists and been shot at and fallen in love with Ravenhead beauties and, you know, crashed motorcycles 135 miles an hour and, you know, done a few other things that, you know, I guess are mildly entertaining, but, you know, now is my chance to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to tell my story. Um, it's going to be framed out around a motorcycle and it's going to involve people. Um, nobody's coming to the project if they don't come to the project to get something from it for themselves. Mm. They're not coming to work. They're not coming for a paycheck. So if you're not motivated by selfish ambition, do not apply. <laughs> right. If, if being involved with my project makes you feel good, makes you feel fulfilled and brings something that if it adds to your life, I want you involved. If, if it's just a job and just a paycheck and you want to take the money and go spend it on something else, then that's, it's not for you. So I'm really, really excited about it. It connects back over 35 years. It's my story. Um, and I think it's, it's a story for every man um, about oh, yeah. what our story becomes as we live our life. Oh yeah. You know, like the hands-on nature of it. It's something that is rather mechanical and adventurous in nature. So it's exciting. Yeah. That's something to look forward to. Thank you so much, Neil, for being on the podcast. Well, thank you guys. And yeah, I wish you all the best with, uh, with what you're doing going forward. I mean, appreciate you are guys who are doing stuff. Do you have any famous last words in the realm of doing stuff? Any sort of get or dones that you would like to share with the audience? Do I have any famous? Just a good slogan. Josh is in hunt for a catchphrase and he thought get her done was an original Joe one. Keeps but I've focusing been... on my catchphrase <laughs> for some reason every mm. time. What's yours, Joe? Well, I don't have one. <laughs> 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 Maybe Neil can come up with something juicy and we can buy it from him. <laughs> I'd let you have it. Um, if I could come up with anything that's worth listening to, right? Um, <laughs> Take your time, Neil. Take my time. Well, you have time because, I mean, this is not live, right? Right. Um, you know, I did say something in one of my stories recently that I quite, a friend of mine quite liked where I said, you know, getting older, obviously everything changes. You know, you have to go to bed early and eat your vegetables and, you know, get plenty of sleep and exercise. And, you know, if I ever did catch one of the girls I was chasing, I'd be as confused as a dog getting his teeth into a metal car bumper. <laughs> That's just, I don't think that's an inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a fantastic ending to a podcast. And on that note, <laughs> get her done, everyone. Yeah, yeah just, um, yeah, you've got one life. 
and um, you've got to live it and you've got to find your passion wherever it is in there. And uh, I think you dig for it, find it. Don't think it's stupid. You know, if you want to dance, dance. If you want to sing, sing. Uh, maybe you're not the best. At, you know, don't, don't take society's idea that you're not successful at what you do if you don't make a million dollars at it. If you do it and you enjoy it, you're successful. Or become a celebrity. Yeah, or become a celebrity. You don't have to be a celebrity to be successful. You don't have to make a million dollars. 